This is NBR's Live from the Hive, a compilation of the week's top stories straight out of the beehive. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. This is Beehive Banter as we let the games begin. It's amazing what a couple of bad polls will do, and we've now discovered, as I suggested weeks ago, Labour were indeed looking at a wealth and capital gains tax. So Labour's own pollsters showing a big drop in support for them, and the right side pollsters saying what I said back in November last year. I'm having a good run. We could be headed for a hung parliament with both Labour and the Nats dropping. Mm. Rent away on no doubt some expensive holiday relaxing poolside at some exclusive resort. Meanwhile, the workers remain. I'm joined today by Director at Commercial and Public Law Firm Franks Ogilvy and political commentator Bridget Morton. Well, Bridget, let's start with the fact that Brent might be poolside, we're poolside. So to what extent did that first poll have out earlier this week? in Hipkins announcing no wealth or capital gains tax, end of story. Well, I think there's two factors here. One is obviously that poll was pretty bad for Labour and reflects what we know has been happening in their internal polling over the last few months. Also, the fact that there was the big budget proactive release, which had all of these very, very detailed papers about just how Labour was going to put in a wealth and a capital gains tax. He knew he had to get out ahead of it. He had to do it from the other side of the world and then leave his colleague Robinson to kind of mop up the mess. But for him, I think no doubt it's another version of the policy bonfire. It was interesting actually Grant Robertson coming through and saying yes I was all in favour of this but I'm a team player. Yeah, it's pretty bad for him. You've got to look at what's left between him and Parker and all the reforms they wanted. You've got no social insurance scheme, you've got no tax changes. What the, what are they left with? Well, several commentators have said, now, what is the point of Labour if you don't make these changes? Indeed, they're almost like they are the opposition at the moment, which we know more about what they don't stand for compared to what they do stand for. We'll get to what taxes are left on the table shortly, but James Shaw, um, obviously, anger would probably be... <laughs> he certainly looked angry, saying New Zealand's tax system has never been more unfair and there's a very real possibility Green members may go on the crossbenches rather than coalition with Labour. That's all bluster, surely. No, I think it's actually more than that. I think you've seen a couple of successive terms of government in which there's been all these promises around taxes. I can see why Shaw and his Green colleagues are fed up. They've clearly been strung along by Labour. They would have known that those discussions were happening pre the budget, and now they've been kind of left with not even post-election will these discussions be available. I think that absolutely, they know where their base is, they know that lots on the left want tax change, that they will absolutely go hard on this issue. But Shaw also said it is still on the table. Robertson saying, no, it isn't. So is it or isn't it? Well, I think in MMP there's no such thing as ruling stuff off the table because they have to negotiate. You know, Labor got their one golden term, which they got to govern by themselves. That's squarely over. They don't get to dictate what's going to be part of coalition negotiations yeah, but and Robertson what's not. Turned, but Robertson turned around and he said, it is not on the table at all. They've drawn that line in the sand. They can't come back now and say, oh, by the way, it is back on the table because we're going into coalition and that's what the Greens want. Well, they can because we know that they've ruled out no new taxes before and we've had a plethora of new taxes since then. <laughs> and I think also just look in 2017. Five weeks of them just giving Winston Peters whatever he wanted to get him to sign that coalition deal. I think they are more than willing to do whatever it takes to retain government. Uh, under what Labor we're considering, most of us would have got an extra grand in our pocket, in our back pocket. So why throw it away? 
Well, I, I think mean, if it gives the majority of everybody, you know, all of us, well, apart from just a few, what, 40,000 odd, <laughs> a big, what effectively is a pay rise, why would you not do it? Because basically they wanted to actually demonstrate the fact that they were not going to tax people more in a cost of living crisis because ultimately the narrative that the opposition would have run and probably still will run, to be honest, is that this is a government that's going to tax you more when you can least afford it. And that would have been a really strong line. So what tax changes are left on the table? Well, it's really unclear. In the next fortnight, we meant to see the tax policy. We've seen some discussions from other senior ministers this week that indicates that maybe there's nothing left on the table at all. So who knows what they're going to allow? Maybe a family tax credit benefit somewhere? I can't tell you. Do you think that they'll change, you know, where the taxes come in? Uh, they, look, I think that would be smart if they did so. But I Pull think the rug out from under the nets. Yeah, but that is going to be difficult to them because you've just seen the fiscal position that we've seen this week. There's not a lot of money to play with, and if they choose to spend all the money there, it's not going to allow them to make any big promises in education and health, the traditional places. All right. Well, I've asked uh, Brent before, but now I'm going to ask you. Uh, what would happen, in your opinion, if we had a hung parliament? Well, I think we're talking about, you know, what the opposition calls the coalition of chaos, you know, the Greens into Pāti Māori would be, and, you know, quite likely Pāti Māori would be that person that gets to change, you know, who gets to be in government. That's very clearly going to be But if the 60 Labour. on the left and the 60 on the right, what happens? I mean, is it, is it who can form first? Is it, I mean, is it minority government? I mean, what are we looking at? Yeah, well, I think that's what we're probably looking at is a, a version of that. I think it's not going to last very long if it is that. Yeah. But I actually would be really surprised. The chances of it statistically happening on election night are pretty small. Although, do you think that if that was the case, we'd be entering into instability that other governments have had overseas, like in, in Greece, for example, where they just, the governments don't last long at all. Because if you've got this coalition of chaos and say, let's just say that Labour has to go hand in, or cap in hand to the Greens and to Party Maori for every bit of legislation, it's not going to last long, as you say, at all. Yeah, but after 2017, there was a lot of discussion that they thought they could never hang together a government that had the Greens and New Zealand First in it. And actually, Jacinda Ardern did a very good job of doing just that. And I think you can ev never underestimate the, the desire to just hold on to power. So at some point, the Greens into Party Māori are going to know that, particularly the Greens, that they're better off in government and getting some of the stuff done than throwing their toys out of the cock completely. There's a lot of uh, lines drawn in the sand, isn't there, going to this election? And a lot of bottom lines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, the Reserve Bank has left its uh, benchmark official cash rate unchanged at 5.5% uh, as expected. However, banks continue to lift mortgages, the latest bank just a few days ago, but it's warned that inflation, this is the Reserve Bank, inflation pressures remain high and the OCR will need to stay high for some time. That's not going to help Labour. Absolutely not. I think it just points, you know, more and more people like me. I'm about to refix my mortgage. And me. It's not helping me at all, that's for sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, for most people, it'll be sort of a relief that it's not going to be a higher number, but it's definitely not going down and not going down anytime yeah, well, soon. I'm saying that the banks still lifted the rates, didn't they? They did. And I mean, I suppose that's always the concern, yeah, food particularly prices for Labour. Food prices also up 12.5%. Uh, 
Yeah, which is hitting people, every person that's affected by that food price is yeah. not just mortgage holders. And I yeah. think, you know, once again, we see no relief in sight and nothing that Labor can promise that will bring relief. It always just seems so much bad news for Labor at the moment because another thing that won't help is when an apology is not in fact an apology. This after a review by Mike Heron QC, uh, KC into the continued use of Dawn Raid tactics after the apology over Dawn Raids, forcing Immigration Minister Andrew Little to say he's sorry again. This on top of errant ministers in the news week after week. How can Labour turn this bad news around? Well, I think this is the consequences of their own actions. This Dawn Raid report has to be one of the most egregious um, disappointments of this government. We remember that big fanfare around the apology. We remember the, mis- the Minister of Pacific Affairs tears in his eyes when he announced that they were doing it at the press conference. How did nobody turn around and make sure it wasn't happening again? Like, how did that happen, that nobody took the eyes and they just thought that the showpiece was enough? Yeah, but, I think but, that but we also do remember, we go, how did it happen about Michael Woods? How did it happen about Stuart Nash? And this is the problem, is the fact that there's clearly some sort of cultural problem coming from the top, I would say, where this level of accountability and transparency has not been put in place, and therefore you're just going to see continued mistake after continued mistake. Coming from the top or coming from the ex-top? Well, I think there's probably a combination. Let's not pretend that Hipkins wasn't part of that leadership team before he became Prime Minister. How can Labour turn it all around? I don't think they can. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, there was the good news on the actual free trade uh, EU agreement, but then Australia saying basically it was rubbish and they would have walked away. Yeah, I think that always makes us feel a bit uncertain. But a lot of big, you know, players and big in our horticulture sector have really welcomed it. And this has been over successive, you know, foreign ministers. I think this is bipartisan. I don't think, well, I don't think anyone's going to vote on whether this, you know, that the thing that this passed. But ultimately, I think this is good news. Um, just because the Australians don't like it doesn't mean that we have to be the same sourpusses. Is all of this beltway? In terms of all the discussions? I don't think so. Yeah. At what point does it no longer become that and the gloom, actually, people start believing it? Well, I think you just look at some of those polls. You know, you've got in that taxpayer courier poll, only 20% of the people think the country's going in the right direction. That's a pretty bad statistic for Labor to be looking at. Well, you'd think then, wouldn't you, that the Nats would be higher than they are. Of course, everyone goes on and everyone says this day after day, oh, no, people don't know Luxon. They don't know him. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, his face is everywhere. He's doing interview after interview. I hear him on the radio all the time. If all sorts of what else can he do? Yeah, I think it's sometimes a self-perpetuating thing. It's the same flip side where everyone's, you know, that Labor can't deliver. It's really hard for them to turn that narrative around no matter what they do. Same thing for Luxon. It is kind of this label that has been stuck on him that people don't know who he is. So he just basically has to kind of continue on doing the grunt work, get out there, as you say, and just leave the media to kind of keep saying that. Well, next week the House is sitting again after the school holidays and uh, <laughs> Chris Hipkins kicked the can down the road, the Kerry Allen can. Uh, so he's still got that to come and the media is going to hound him about how that meeting went. So what do you see or how do you see the next few weeks going? Well, I mean, they're basically going into the last big block before the House rises. So we've got about five sitting weeks. They've got some really big, urgent stuff to get through. There's three waters legislation, these RMA replacement bills. There's a lot to be done, and I think it's mostly high risk for Labor at this point. All right, Richard, uh, I really appreciate your thoughts today. Thank you. And uh, Brent, we'll be back uh, next week. And as usual, we appreciate you watching or listening, and we'll catch you again soon. 
The government's books are not in as good a shape as the Treasury forecast. To talk about what that might mean for the election debate, I'm joined by NBR's political editor, Brent Edwards. Brent, are voters likely to be worried about the state of the government's finances, do you think? Um, Probably not hugely worried in a sense that I think many voters really, really focus on, on that. I mean, they're more interested in how much the government might be spending on issues that matter to them and, and how much tax they might be paid. And as a former National Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, once said, a, you know, he said a voter wouldn't know a deficit if he or she fell over one. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's correct, but I think probably voters will be more interested in inflation, interest rates, uh, employment, Um, you know, the things that affect their day-to-day lives in that matter. But it will be a backdrop, certainly, to the political debate in, you know, heading into the election. That's right. It kind of plays into the idea that um, Labour is economically or fiscally irresponsible or something like that, do you think? Yeah, well, that's certainly the the attack from uh, both the National Party and ACT. This, again, is another example of poor economic management, given that the the books for the 11 months to the end of May showed that the the deficit was two billion dollars higher at um, at seven billion dollars high, two billion dollars higher than the Treasury had forecast in the May budget. Now, of course, that was just a forecast. So, you know, I think all Treasury forecasts are proven pretty much wrong within. A week or two of them being made, you you feel for them, as all forecasters face that difficulty. I mean, the the point that the the government, that Finance Minister Grant Roberts makes, is that yeah, that's not great, but it's actually still better, way better than last year, and it is. And of course, one of the things driving it was the fact that tax take, but largely corporate tax, was down, which again has got both ACT and National picking up on the fact that's because of economic mismanagement. The government's made things too tough for businesses and that's why they're paying less tax. Do you think these themes will endure until these official debates start? And I guess they're starting on television at some point in the near future. Well, well, it's but it's been a line that both National Act have been running for a long time. You know, the line is the government's um, economically and fiscally irresponsible. And again, I mean, Grant Robertson's been running the line for a long, long time that no, the government's economically responsible, and that's one of the reasons why we're sort of getting through the the fallout, if you like, from COVID nineteen as well as we are. And at the moment, even if we were in recession and, you know, maybe the um, when they revise that uh, March quarter, it might not show that we were in recession. But at the moment, it looks like New Zealand is getting that soft landing that economists have talked about rather than the hard landing many feared. And so Robertson will be arguing, look, we've managed as well as we can in difficult circumstances um, against the, the political argument from the opposition that, no, things are a lot worse than they should be because of government mismanagement. I mean, that's going to be the debate, but I, I guess voters, I think, will make their decisions based on how they feel. So if they're feeling worse off, they may blame the government. I mean, if, But if they think, oh, well, things could have been worse, but I've still got a job, I can still afford the mortgage... Um, we got through COVID all right, then then maybe they might give the government some kudos. But it's certainly going to be the debate right through to election day. Can I ask you, do you think Grant Robertson has receded into the background a little bit in terms of his public profile? And is that a deliberate thing or is it just events have overtaken his role? Um I, I guess, well, one of the things was um, with the change of leadership. I mean, he was really number two to Jacinda Ardern. Uh, 
Chris Hipkins taken over as leader, Prime Minister, and Carmel Cipollone is Deputy Prime Minister. So I, th- I think probably um, Grant Robertson has kind of deliberately step back a little bit, but he's still very much featuring in the news as finance minister. I mean, hard not to, but I, but I do think he's probably giving that new leadership team that room to, to, to shine, rather than, you know, being a reminder, if you like, of the what might have been seen as the Ardern-Robertson regime. It's now the um, Hipkins-Cipollone regime. True, true. So what other economic announcements might affect the debates coming up, do you think? Well, um, next week we've got the um, next inflation figure, CPI. So I guess uh, it'll be interesting because in her statements attacking um, Grant Robertson, Nationals uh, finance spokesperson Nicola Willis talked about the worsening inflation, whereas in the last number we got it was actually better than the previous three months. So I guess the government will be hoping inflation continues on its downward path um, in these next figures. And then there are GDP figures out in on September 21, only about three weeks before the election. Um, and again, I guess how those figures look will either feed the argument the government makes, oh, look, the economy's doing OK despite these tough times, or feed the opposition's argument to say, oh, look, the economy's crashing, it's terrible, it's all the government's fault. So... And at the same time, the final, I guess, significant piece will be we will get the Treasury update, the pre-election fiscal and economic update, at some point um, two or three weeks before the election. Um, and that, that will give an updated figure around where they think the government's books are going and the economy. So that will also add a lot more grist to the mill when it comes to that, that economic debate um, around who, who can manage the economy better. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Thanks very much, Brent. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. As the election approaches, it's the end of the ministerial road for some politicians. But what happens to the private members' bills they leave behind? Bridget Morton's had a look in this week's column. And Bridget, so what does happen to these uh, biscuit tin pieces of legislation? So in theory, they die as the members leave, basically. But what often happens is there is an opportunity to pick them up by another sponsor. So if you've got friends and caucus who support your bill, often there'll be a new member that wants to pick them up. Interestingly, we've got, you know, Dr. Elizabeth Kitty who's the Greens slash independent, who's resigning. She's got a private member's bill in her name. And it's not clear whether one of her former Greens colleagues will pick that up for her. Some of them are sort of quite weird and wonderful, though. They're, they're likely to kind of die a death, aren't they? Uh, I think possibly. I think for many new MPs coming in, though, it's having a project and having something against their name is quite good. So there's sometimes an opportunity, they see it, is to pick them up. I think what's really interesting, too, is obviously we've got a number of bills there that are government bills, um, a number of ones which will continue on. So the treaty settlement bills, for instance, they've got bipartisan support. But if the government doesn't get through, say, the Three Borders legislation or resource management um, replacement bills, two big promises they've made, that would be quite a disaster for them, I think. Nevertheless, it's going to be a busy legislative agenda in the lead up to, to the election, isn't it? 
Yeah, it often is. They often try and squeeze out as much as they can. So we probably should expect some urgency in there. But also we've got a large stack of valedictories uh, to get through. There's quite a few retiring members. Uh, I think particularly there's a few members that have seen the writing on the wall, uh, particularly from Labor's side, because no matter what happens, they're going to lose MPs and have gone, I'd rather take it on my terms and get a valedictory speech rather than being just turfed out on election night. The Labor government obviously are going to want to get a few things done before they leave, but, well, if they leave, of course, but uh, they haven't actually got a lot in the kitty to play with, have they, monetarily-wise, after the um, the last um, announcement of the budget? Yeah, absolutely, and we've just seen polls that have come out today that um, is putting it harder and harder for Labor to get that elusive third term. And it's, I think, you know, what a number of governments would have done, and I think particularly Labor, would have gone for much more of that Fort Ballerine type approach, local roads, local classrooms, uh, local uh, health facilities, et cetera. But with the news that we're actually in a worse financial position than they even thought um, a couple of months ago, there's just actually not much money in the kitty for them. I mean, it also makes a problem for National and Act. Obviously, there's um, an impetus from their side that they really want to deliver tax cuts. It's much harder to deliver tax cuts if you haven't got, you know, if you're further in deficit than you thought. So in terms of the handover to whoever is in government uh, in October, we don't actually have a formal caretaker kind of pre-election role, do we, in this country? Yeah, so we don't have a formal caretaker period, but there's basically a convention by which the major parties don't make big decisions without consulting each other. Obviously, there has to be some big decisions made during that time, um, particularly if you're talking about foreign affairs. But the convention is that you contact the counterpart um, from the opposition and discuss that with them. But so for the most part, a lot of the public service in Wellington, the ones that are not focused on sort of frontline delivery, but rather on policy, actually kind of put tools down for a bit. The only sort of busy little hubs in those departments are the people that are producing what's called the red book and the blue book, which is the incoming briefing books for whoever is in government. Yes, yeah, so you know, once Parliament rises, there will be a few um, list MPs and so forth with not a great deal to do. Yeah, absolutely. If they're a retiring list MP, um, they kind of get a couple of months sort of paid leave and obviously get that period just post the um, election as well. I think they get about four weeks um, until they've got to sort of find themselves another job. All right, it's getting to the pointy end. Thanks very much, Bridget. No problem. And that's been this week's Live from the Hive. Thanks for listening.